0: I think I became the moon guy uh, by struggling at DSOs enough to where I was sh- shooting the moon out of frustration <laughs> because uh, you know my uh, you know my DSO efforts you know weren't going as well as I wanted to. I didn't really think it was anything special at first, um, but uh, you know once I, I think I, I, my first picture went viral. I want to say it was in January or February, um, and I realized that nobody was doing these like monster moon mosaics. Um, You know, where they would, you know, try to capture the earth shine, the stars, and just make them as high resolution as possible by using a longer focal length.
1: That was this week's guest, famed astrophotographer and moon photography sensation, Andrew McCarthy. Or, as you may know him on Instagram, Cosmic Background. So, let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories.
2: Yeah, welcome to the podcast, man. Welcome to the OPT team. You know, you're the newest member of the what we call the OP team. And um, yeah, it's it's good to have you. And, and we, we can already tell. I mean, after a week, it looks like we're gonna be able to do some really solid stuff together, man. This is it's been cool watching your stuff. And, you know, I was looking at your your moon photos. I think I mean, some of these things, I just saw one of them had thirty thousand likes. Man, you you probably have the most viewed moon moon photos out there.
0: Oh, th- thank you. Uh, you know, I have a lot of fun shooting them. Uh, it's a lot of work. Uh, I you know apply planetary photography techniques to the moon. Uh, you know to get it really nice and crystal clear, mm-hmm. and then do a blend of like kind of a HDR compositing techniques to you know bring out the the dark side, the stars. Uh, you know, and anything else in the scene like clouds. Uh, so it's a lot of fun, a lot of work, but, uh, you know, I'm really happy with it.
2: Yeah, I love those where you um, you do, you like super under expose the moon to get the stars in the back and then, you know, expose the moon the you know, the, the right exposure and uh, overlay it, right? And it looks so amazing. I love those photos and it looks like I'm not the only one. I mean, those things spread like wildfire through social media, but um what got you into that? Like, how did you just become the moon guy?
0: Uh, you know, good, great question. Um, I think I became the moon guy uh, by struggling at DSOs enough uh, to where <laughs> I was sh- shooting the moon out of frustration yeah. <laughs> because, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, my DSO efforts, you know, weren't going as well as I wanted to. Um, so, you know, I just thought, oh, what the heck, I'll just take the best picture of the moon I can. And, you know, just worked on that for a while and, you know, ended up pretty happy with my results and started sharing them. Uh, you know, I, I didn't really think it was anything special at first, um, but, uh, you know, once I, I think I had, I my first picture went viral, I want to say it was in January or February. Um, and I realized that nobody was doing these like monster moon right. mosaics, um, you know, where they would, you know, try to capture the earth shine, the stars and just make them as high resolution as possible by using a longer focal length. Uh, so I think I was just the, you know, one of the first guys that just tried to do that and was was promoting it, right. I, I think, in just the right way, so that people realize that yes, this is a real picture, and this thing's hanging above our heads all the time. Because uh, I think, you know, most people just take the moon for granted. So maybe just exposing it to them in just the right way, uh, you know, was able to you know get these things to take off. And you know now people look at me like the, I'm the moon guy, which is funny because that really wasn't my intention. <laughs>
1: Now, when you say you take these as a mosaic, that means that you break up the moon, the, the surface of the moon into smaller fields of view and then put them together at the end, correct?
0: Correct, yes. Yeah. So w- what I'm doing is I'm using a very long focal length. I'm using about 5,000 millimeters. So the entire moon isn't in my in my frame when I'm taking a picture.
1: And what's the rough magnification on that? It's such a oh, visual... gosh, I don't know. It's <laughs> yeah. such a visual uh, astronomy to, question, question to, calculate to ask. That, to be honest. We were out in Dustin's front yard with a... Uh, really beautiful dob sony he had a 20 inch dob and uh we were putting these eyepieces in and, and getting things like 200 power and i'm looking at the ring nebula and it's filling up the eyepiece and i'm sorry what but that stuff's great that? I, I don't love that stuff i don't know Tony. i mean i mean what, it's what, enough, what should i be? Man. what should With i be photography. Saying? It,
2: yeah it's enough and uh <laughs> it's high enough it's like you're trying to enjoy taking your, your photo and then here comes the visual astronomer say, I need you to do some math for me real quick. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you know, I think you're right, though, Andrew, I think your timing was right for one thing in order to make you the, the moon guy. But I also think it's not that other people haven't tried to do what you're doing. It's just complicated. You're taking something that's simple, like taking a picture of the moon is simple, But taking a picture of the moon the way you are is extremely complicated. And I think that's what separates it is that you're going after level of levels of detail that you have to have just kind of gotten used to going after with like DSOs, the, the deep, deep space stuff, galaxies and things, because you're shooting the moon. With, I mean, what over a terabyte of data sometimes, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it is pretty complicated. Um, you know, I, I think just just one night, I was like, you know, I'm just going to see like just how crazy detailed I can get these shots, uh, and you know, just dumped like basically you know a whole evening into my first shot, and yeah. uh, you know, came out with something pretty magical. So. It's you're right. It's definitely more complex. I think that's uh, you know shooting the moon is something that right. can be as easy or as difficult as you want it to be, uh, depending on how detailed you want your shot and what you want that final image to look like.
2: Are you kind of where you were looking to be? Are you getting the shots that you wanted? or Are you still trying to push it even further?
0: Uh, I'm absolutely never satisfied. <laughs> Um, you know,
2: what kind of response are you getting from, I know you've got a huge community on Reddit. You've got a big community on Instagram. What, what's the response What are you getting in comments and things from people about those shots?
0: Uh, you know, people, uh, people make a lot of, you know, the, the same jokes, like, you know, where, where's the flag, where's the moodlander? lander, <laughs> uh, but you know, I'm also getting a lot of great feedback, like, wow, this is the best picture I've ever seen. And, um, you know, like th- this is, you know, what I wish I was able to take a picture of, you know, when I'm pulling out my iPhone. Um, you know, it's that's you know the kind of feedback that I really look for because, you know, it inspires people to know these kinds of pictures are possible. Uh, you know, if you just have the right experience and the right gear.
1: Can we get a sense of your process? How do you go about doing these mosaics of the moon?
0: Absolutely. So what I do to create these mosaics is, um, you know, I start by, of course, setting up my scope. I attach, uh, you know, whatever camera I'm going to be using. Uh, which I actually use a blend of three cameras right now, just to make things complicated. Uh, I use uh, a, uh, an ASI 224MC, which is actually a planetary camera, a, uh, a ASI 1600mm, and a Sony a 7 And what those do is those give me um, the tools I need to, one, capture color, capture detail, and capture that the total composition. And I record the raw video using... Uh, both the planetary camera and the ASI 1600mm, uh, which gives me re- this raw data of uh, really up close pictures of the moon. Uh, like I said, it was about 5,000 millimeters. So depending on which camera I'm using, sometimes it's only like you know like a fiftieth of the surface of the moon that's visible. Uh, so I'm recording videos, maybe about 2,000 frames at a time, and I just slowly scan the surface of the moon after taking each batch of photos until I end up with you know the com- the complete composition
1: about 2000 frames in the video
0: correct yeah per section of the moon so then i take all those tiles and then use a combination of different softwares to blend them all together
1: so you're you're doing a
2: hundred thousand uh hundred thousand frames total on the moon
0: uh sometimes even more than that i mean i've i've i think my record is about a million frames
1: wow now obviously this is automated right you're not picking through every frame individually and and putting them together correct
0: yeah it's all batched so you all i'll process you know, two thousand frames at a time and uh sometimes I will you'll know, just dump all of my data into the software and just see what spits out the next day and then sometimes a little more meticulous I look through specific video files like ah, oh, this one's garbage, throw this one out, throw this one out. Until I, you'll know, get a collection of data that I'm happy with and then go through and process it all. It really depends on how meticulous I'm feeling that day.
2: Yeah. So Tony, the way the way digital photography works is that as as opposed to film, as, as so, opposed yeah, to film? Like he doesn't he doesn't have to go to Walgreens and like print all of the images and then manually lay them out on the kitchen table. It's, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you after bad. the podcast. You're we'll talk bad. about it after yeah. the podcast.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you, because I've only just <laughs> stopped carving things on stone. <laughs> so uh, it's nice to know that there's these newfangled ways that are available to us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. No, this
2: is... Uh, It's incredible. And I I didn't know you were using the uh, multiple cameras for the same shot. I wondered because I saw that you said this last photo was like 81 megapixels. And so I knew that they had to be mosaics, but I didn't realize that you were doing, you know, a mono um, uh, mosaic as well to get that detail built in.
0: Generally, what I'll do is uh, I'll apply a either red or a hydrogen alpha filter over the monochrome camera to create a luminance layer over the moon. Uh, and just take as many frames as I can with that so I get the details really sharp. And I'll use either the 224MC or the uh, A72 to create a tone map of the moon so I can pull out some of the color.
2: And, and hydrogen alpha, huh? You're doing a hydrogen instead of just a luminance filter.
0: Right. So, uh, you know, I'm trying to reduce the effects of the relay scattering. So it, that sharpens up the image a lot. You can You can actually get away with just using a red yeah. filter. But uh, hydrogen alpha, I find, makes it even a little more crisp. Um, it, and it really, it really depends on conditions that night and the focal length I'm using, because sometimes uh, the hydrogen alpha filter actually makes things so dark Uh, that it it takes too long to get the exposures I need, so I'll just switch to a red filter, which is going to give a much brighter image and allow for shorter exposures.
2: Well, that's why I was asking, because this is a lucky imaging process, the idea being to take as many frames as you possibly can, and then you throw away all the ones that had bad seeing conditions, because you said you're at 5 meters of focal length, right?
0: Yeah, that's correct.
2: So five meters of focal length, I mean, you're really amplifying the issues, the atmospheric disturbances in the image. So you have to pick those that fraction of a second where the atmosphere above you is stable, and those are the images you keep. It's called lucky imaging. But that only works when you're doing really, really fast frame rate stuff and if you're going to be doing hydrogen alpha that's why it was surprising that that would work is you know you're going to be averaging longer periods of atmosphere above you to try to find the lucky in quotes you know period
0: well, I, I think it's also a blend of lucky imaging, but also boosting the signal to noise ratio enough so that you can really right. sharpen up that image without introducing artifacts.
2: Yeah. Well, and I guess that makes sense because, I mean, your signal then is going to be a lot more of, like you said, there's there's not going to be as much scattering and other things that you could call noise in your image in the first place. So I guess the time wouldn't be as critical as it would be with something like a luminance filter. Yeah. Wow. That's that's interesting. So you thought we had you on here just to talk and hang out, man, but really so I can steal all your tricks. and. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Steal away. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this stuff, you know, I'm I'm kind of feeling my way along and I've learned a lot from the community. So, you know, as much as I can give back and, you know, get other people involved in this, that just makes me happy. Definitely happy to share my tricks.
2: It's the whole reason you and I started talking in the first place. I really appreciate why you're doing all this stuff and how you're going about it. Because I can, I can say that, you know, every time we've ever talked, that's been the truth about your side of the conversation is, It does seem to be just about helping the community and helping people get into this and and sharing. Like You've never been like, oh, this is my secret. Don't tell anybody. It's always the opposite. It's like,
1: yeah, I want to help people take better images and do their own thing. That's that's awesome. And you've built a really big community too. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what you're doing on Instagram and Reddit.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So when I take a image, of course, uh, first thing I do is I share it with the community, <laughs> um, and you know I, I do a lot of cross promotion, right? When I post uh, post my images to Reddit. I always say, hey, if you like this, come check out my Instagram, and you know I'll give you a little more like the behind the scenes because I'm always posting you know, little little videos and images to my story that kind of show little pieces of the process, uh, and I think that gets people's curiosity, and you know they come and they join my community on instagram
1: how long have you been doing that on instagram and also reddit
0: let me see i've been posting to reddit probably uh probably maybe two to three years in the uh in like the astrophotography type communities and instagram i think i signed up my account november last year so a little less than a year
1: wow you've grown quickly
0: yeah you know it helps a couple pictures went viral
1: (laughs) which ones were those and Tell us a little bit about some of your favorites.
0: Oh, sure. Um, let's see. My, I think my first image that went viral was actually just a composition I made of the solar system. Um, you know, I, I,
1: yes, I want to ask you about that in a minute. Yeah.
0: So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I just kind of put together a, you know, an image for fun. That was just, you know, a compilation of the different planets. Uh, they weren't even in order <laughs> and I posted it to Reddit and it, it front page it was on the front page all day. And, uh, you know, a couple, um, a couple photography blogs picked it up and, um, you know, that was, kind of my first little, little taste of, you know, the viral sensation of, of the photography. And, uh, it was, it was kind of frustrating because of course, immediately after I post my images, I always catch all the things that are wrong with them. Like in this case, uh, Saturn and Jupiter were in the wrong order. <laughs> so, um, you know, it got, kind of frustrated me, but, but, you know, that's okay. Cause you know, I, I learned from it and I was able to actually create an even better image, uh, six months later.
1: Well, it's too bad. This is one of those times where it'd be great if we had a visual medium here. But the image that we're talking about is a composite that has the moon on the left side, the sun on the right, and in between are all well many planets, including a comet and the International Space Station. So these are a composite of many different subjects that you've taken. And you just put them all together after you've gotten the images of saturn for example and, and jupiter and things like that right
0: correct yeah this was when i first started uh you know playing around with planetary imaging um i got a little planetary camera and attached it to my dobsonian uh and you know had some time spending you know shooting jupiter shooting mars shooting saturn uh they weren't you know exceptional photos either you know they were what you'd expect from a beginner learning how to use a, a a planetary camera at 1200 millimeters so not exceptionally long focal lengths not, not a ton of detail i think it was just the the combination of you know just the, the composite i made but also um you know kind of talking a little bit about astrophotography that i think got people interested in it because most people don't realize you can actually do this from your backyard
1: how did you get the iss
0: well uh, that's that's a lot of fun actually um you, you attach a video camera to a dobsonian and you simply track it as it moves up the sky while you're recording frames. Uh, and then you can throw that into okay. pre-processing software. that will scan the frames for an object, and it'll pull out the frames with the ISS in it. You know, you, if you're lucky, maybe you get like you know maybe 500 frames of the ISS in it, and uh, you can pick your favorites and end up with some pretty cool images.
1: <laughs> it's a great photo or a great image, I should say. It's really, I think, it's very creative how you put all that stuff together.
0: Uh, you asked <laughs> me about my favorite image, and uh yes. I, it's actually, I think, uh, it, it, interestingly enough, it's it's one that probably. Uh, got me the most international attention because <laughs> it was in uh, news articles all around the world. But I took a picture of the moon and I exaggerated the colors on it to bring out the different mineral compositions. And uh, I really like the image. I think it's I think it's just kind of a cool take on the moon. I've never seen anybody do it quite like this before. But what's interesting is just really how easy it was to do that. <laughs> um, you know, just boost the saturation and you know kind of got me a lot of global attention.
1: How many filters were in that image?
0: Uh, none. Th- that was simply taken with my, uh, let's see, that was with, taken with the a7-2. Uh, I think I took about maybe 500 images with the a7-2 and I built a mosaic out of the 224MC using using planet- planetary cameras, my luminance layer. And that was for a supermoon that happened in February. And I simply took that su- supermoon shot, which I also shared and everybody seemed to like, and exaggerated the colors in there just to see how much color data I had.
1: I see. You're right. It's very colorful. I mean, that's, you know, there's blues and browns and, and and all kinds of different things in there, and those are those are related to mineral content in the of the moon.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, those those seas on the moon are ancient hardened beds of basaltic lava, and their composition varies just you know depending on the location on the moon, and you can actually see it. In this image, you see that the blues are actually titanium-rich areas of basalt, and you have got orange areas that are more iron-rich with less titanium. And you can actually see how impacts change the color of the surface by scattering debris over them, so those areas are a little more bleached. It was fascinating to me.
1: When you're taking these images and posting them, do you find that you're giving any science behind what what people are looking at, or do you just post the image and say how you took it?
0: I usually post a little bit of backstory as well. I I don't want to get, you know, too into the weeds because i find uh, you know it's it's a lot to digest if i do i usually you'll know, give a very brief summary of how i took the image uh and maybe just like a touch of the science behind it um, you know like with that mineral composition i you know specifically touched on all right you know this is what the different colors represent but i didn't get too into the weeds like how those colors got there or anything like that
1: and you got into this because you said that your father had shown you jupiter and saturn through a telescope when you were younger right
0: yeah, that's right i was a little kid
1: yeah and so that's what sparked this interest how old how old were you when that oh happened? i don't know eight nine <laughs> <That was> yeah <laughs> is. there's something about that age there's something about being eight i was eight when i decided i wanted to be in astronomy too so Something about that age, I guess. And you do a lot of uh, solar work as well. Tell us a little about your gear that you use for that.
0: Oh, sure. I've got a Solar Max 3. It's a 70 millimeter with a 15 millimeter blocking filter, a, d- a double stack. Um, so that gets me about a half angstrom of visual light in hydrogen alpha. So that allows me to make out details on the surface, uh, prominences, of course, mm-hmm. and the, the spicula that's on the surface and... You know, it's very quiet right now, but the occasional sunspot as well.
1: You got anything planned for the uh, Mercury transit coming up next month?
0: Yeah, I'm hoping the weather's clear and I'm going to find an area with a clear view of the horizon because it's actually pretty early in the morning. And hopefully I can get some shots of it. Won't look like much because it's a little speck, <laughs> but, uh, you know, at least uh, maybe get a nice animation of the transit as it moves across. would be cool.
1: That's what I want to do, too. Yeah, I wanted it. I've I've seen many transits and I've visually observed them, but I haven't captured them in any kind of complete video way. I want to do that.
0: Oh yeah, Yeah, it's a great opportunity. Definitely, you know, we we unfortunately won't get a Venus transit for quite a while, but I know uh, the Mercury Mercury will do the trick.
2: Andrew, you get a lot of um, you do a lot of uh, DSO imaging as well. You know, nebulae, galaxies, these things. Uh, It's such a different type of photography. Uh, How do how have you kind of bridge that gap? How did you, I mean, is it, is it, do you, well, I guess the first question is, do you feel like it's very different? I feel like they're almost two completely different hobbies.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's, it's very different. Uh, You know, shooting, shooting planets and the moon is on one spectrum, shooting solar is on another. And then DSOs is just a completely different animal. Um, You know, as I mentioned earlier, DSOs were kind of my passion. It's actually what got me into this. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still fighting with it. It's, you know, it's quite a challenge, uh, you know, learning how to, you know, not to, of course, just get really good data on a target, but also, you know, get uh, the right results in post-processing as well. So it's definitely very different um, and it takes a completely different skill set, in my opinion.
2: And do you think of, do you think of the two, the DSO imaging is more difficult? I would, I would say that planetary is more difficult.
0: Uh, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I think DSO imaging takes more patience. Yeah. Um, than planetary because planetary you can go out there and spend five minutes uh, if your scope's set up already you can just record a quick video of the planet come back inside and spend a little bit of time processing and actually have a pretty decent result conditions have to be just right and you have to know what you're doing of course getting the right focus and everything but um your DSOs isn't like that you know you have to spend you know in some cases days trained on a target you have to make sure that your equipment's operating properly and um, then in post-processing it could be days as well getting that final image of course i'm talking about when you're shooting narrowband you know some of the more advanced stuff it's actually quite simple if you take a simple approach in dark skies with you know just a dslr on a tracker and you can actually get some great nebula shots that way as well
2: yeah i, I generally so especially narrowband i'll spend two to three weeks on a single image you know but it's two to three weeks of the same thing and so it doesn't feel like it's getting the data isn't challenging as long as everything's set up properly but what i always found with uh with planetary that that kind of steered me away from doing it uh, regularly was that i guess I guess I should clarify because it wasn't it's not that it's more challenging it's just more challenging to produce an image that I was happy with. I feel like I could get an image of Saturn, but getting these like super sharp images that I see from the best out there the the Damien peaches of the world that's what I was after, and I just felt like, man you have to everything has to happen so fast because like you said you get the whole image in two to five minutes everything has to happen so fast and focus is so incredibly critical and if anything goes wrong or if the night just doesn't have perfect scene conditions you know it's very very challenging and then even where we are we're thirty three degrees latitude this stuff is still fairly low on the horizon so it just felt like a lot of the cards were stacked against me with planetary trying to get these these top level images whereas with DSO. I mean, they're everywhere. They are everywhere. You can always find something up
1: that's in a great spot of the sky and that you can go after. Well, you guys, both of you are imagers. You need to do something for me. I need to know, Dustin just got through saying that he thinks that the planetary portion is really hard to get the detail. So many things have to happen, but I've heard stories of you guys going out, turning on your telescope, getting the camera set up, and then going to bed. So come on, how hard can it be? (laughs) So my question to you guys is this, how much time is devoted to processing these images and, or, and taking the images. It sounds to be like taking them as an automated process, whether you're using um, a planetary stuff or deep sky stuff.
0: Well, if you're set up for automation, it absolutely is automated. Uh, I I find I spend most of my evenings, uh, you know, maybe the first couple hours really just getting the software to do what I want it to. (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) I'm, you know, still, you know, I'm I'm fairly new to automation. I think I, you know, I took my first automated image maybe three weeks ago. So, uh, you know, I'm still, you know, figuring out the configuration part of it. But definitely once you get it established, you know, there's... Astrophotographers that literally just click a button and go to bed.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's how I have the. So I do it both ways. I have the observatories that I run. That um, I mean, I log into them. I click the targets I want. and select how many filters, and it will it'll go through all of the targets all night. Go back each night after to the same exact spot. Run all my filters for me. Refocus every hour. All that stuff. You know. So it's fully automated to where I just tell it what to do. I go to sleep and I wake up, and then there's there's beautiful data. But I feel a little bit, and I know I shouldn't say this because I I don't like when other people say it, but I feel a little bit removed from the process because of how simple, you know, the, the challenging part with the observatories is getting them set up in the first place. It's making all the decisions that go into an automated observatory. And there are a lot of things. I mean, my first one that I built, I mean, it took a year and a half to get it the way I wanted it to work. A year and a half of constant tinkering. But then... You know, there's there's something to be said for the system that actually, Tony, you saw yesterday. I keep several systems in my garage all the time. And um, I love the process of setting that up outside and being with it. And even though, I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm not the one like I'm not having to turn the focuser manually or anything because it's still software driven. I'm going through each exposure and I'm seeing it come in. It's almost like fishing, right? Like you throw out a 30 minute exposure and you're waiting. You can see that countdown timer. And then, right as it comes in, it's exciting every single time to see what you got. And um, having to do it manually, it's it there's a very, it's a very rewarding process because there there is a lot that can go wrong with the observatories. It's going to do what it does every single time, and I don't really have to worry about anything. But manually, I'm sitting out there, and it's like, man, a car drives by, or anything can go wrong at any at any time, and you're just facing a lot of challenges. It's very rewarding when you finish an image of you know, two or three nights and you, you got there and it's not as certain at the beginning that you will get there.
1: But isn't it true that when you say manually taking an image, you're still setting it up, you're polar aligning and you're turning on all your equipment and and your software, getting your object centered. But then you just say, take image. No, there
2: are so many things. There's not an imager in the world that would tell you that this isn't a uh, labor of love. I mean, it takes work and, um, everybody has set up and spent a full night at minimum. I've probably done this 50 times, spent a full night trying to get one image, right. And never, and came out with nothing, whether it be because I forgot a USB cable or something just messed up in the software and you can't beat it. And you spend an entire night and the whole night is wasted trying to get there, but even that, I mean, it can be like just being with the equipment and working through it. The challenge, I think, is what makes it rewarding. Do you have anything to add to that, Andrew?
0: Absolutely. I say if you're outside getting attacked by mosquitoes and freezing your butt off, it totally counts as manual.
2: <laughs> okay. <laughs> that's that's better than everything I just said. because all of that. <laughs> yeah. And out here, you have to worry about rattlesnakes and everything else. So... Yeah, that's right. Very manual, indeed.
1: And the cool thing about this is once you've got all this data, you could do these really creative things with it. Sure, you could try to compose everything so that you get a photorealistic image of, say, the ring nebula or whatever it is you're taking a picture. of. But you can then also do the kinds of things that Andrew's doing with these composites, like the solar system composite we just talked about. And I also see... Uh, you have a couple of images where you have a I think it's a galaxy and in the center of the core of the galaxy you have a moon or the, a photo of the moon composed in there and they that artistic side that I find really fascinating
0: yes yeah, it's, it's it's kind of a challenge right because I think most astrophotographers are scientists at heart so they never want to betray their data you know they want to make make that image you're really true to the source data and you know I I try not to do that as much because i think at the end of the day i'm just trying to make the best image i can and there is an artistic side of this that can be explored and i think not enough people do it uh you know we can you have a lot of fun with composites if you're willing um just as long as you know you you're really honest and transparent about how you got that final image uh you know nobody hopefully thinks that the moon is the center of the Andromeda galaxy, but I thought it made a cool composition. So I shared it anyway.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like you're going to say, where was that? That That's not a thing that really exists, but come on guys. We, you, you take images of the Trifid Nebula or the Eagle Nebula or M31, whatever it is you're, fo- you're taking a photo of. And we've seen these a lot. So what distinguishes an image of the Andromeda galaxy from every other image of the Andromeda galaxy. And I find that when you put some artistic license into it, it makes it really interesting. And uh, so let me ask you, Andrew, what what makes an extraordinary image of the Andromeda galaxy?
0: Well, I think for most astrophotographers, it would be you know, a couple things. It was, you know, one, how much detail did you get? And, you know, two, how well did you, you know, bring out the characteristics of it? it's, I think it's, uh, you know, like, like I said, most of them are scientists at heart. And it's more about just how accurately did you, did you capture it? Now, the artistic challenge is, you know, how is yours different than the next guy's? And the answer is, it's usually not. You know, there's um, there, there's a lot of people that do take some creative liberties with color and, you know, they, they bring out like maybe let's say more of the, the hydrogen alpha side of Andromeda, right? So you see more of the nebulosity that's within that galaxy. And, you know, those images are really cool and they stand out from others that don't use those filters. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, it's... Really, I mean, Hubble Telescope's going to outshine you every single time. <laughs> um, right. You know, any space telescope's going to outshine you. So, um, you know that I think it becomes more of a personal challenge than anything else. Just being able to get that image as good as you can make it, uh, and you know that's that's really what makes it a good image. Is did you did you accomplish your goals when
1: taking? And that seems to be the the, the trick, right? I mean, you are just doing the best that you can to bring out your own personal best right
0: yeah absolutely uh, it's, i think this yeah. is a very um th- this hobby is a very independent one right it's about setting personal goals and achieving those goals
1: i think
2: you're right too about what you said about most astrophotographers um enjoying the science of this and not wanting to be untrue to the data um i don't i don't really have that I I don't mind at all just ripping the data apart and and pushing the colors as far as I can. You know, here, actually, they make fun of me a little bit because they say, you know, Dustin takes his images, puts them in the oven and cooks them. And then when they're fully done, he puts them back (laughs) in the oven and cooks them again, you know you know, it's, it's true. I love like those, the big, crunchy, super colorful images. I love that stuff. That's why I love this moon photo you were just talking about is because it shows me something different. I don't want to see the same thing again. And I, in a lot of your images, and I, and I, I say this as the best compliment is that you can tell that you took them. And that's a very hard thing to do, but I, I don't like the argument that, Hey, these things have been Done before, like everybody's taken a picture of the Andromeda Galaxy or the Horsehead. Everybody takes a picture of the Horsehead right. or Orion.
1: So why do it? No, that wasn't what I said. I, I didn't say why do it. It's just what distinguishes all of these images from each other. I think it's like any artistic process,
2: though. It's like, like there have been a billion times that a painter sat down at a white canvas and started their process. And I just think that you're gonna come out with something different. And even if the differences are subtle, which a lot of times they're not, you know, you can look at a lot of different photographers, Andrew's one of them, and say like, yep, I I know his work. I can tell this is his work, especially the moon stuff. It's like, man, you know exactly who that came from. Um, But I think that's that's the whole point of all of this. And I think that's why this hobby is so magnetic for you know hyper intelligent people is because it's like it's the challenge it is really really difficult to do in the first place and then beyond that you know just photography in general is difficult to do in the first place and then you take the a very challenging hobby you push it you're like all right well let's collect light where there is none now let's point this up into a dark sky and make it even more challenging. And then let's do it over time periods instead of, you know, a long exposure being one second. Let's do 50 hours of exposure, you know, and data sizes that are like, like you do, Andrew, a terabyte of data that we're going to go through and all of this stuff. And let's compound the challenge a million times over and just really see not only how far this hobby can be pushed, but how far individually we can be pushed. All right, I think that's what this hobby does. Andrew, do you have anything to
1: add, or
0: no? You know, I think I think he's uh, yeah. you know pretty much nailed it. You know, one thing I yeah. have noticed about Dustin's images is you know, they definitely have a unique characteristic to them that I haven't seen in as many other astrophotographers. So you can you know really tell you know he he embeds his artistic footprint into every single one of them.
1: I think there are two frontiers here in as in amateur imaging. And one of them is what we were just talking about, this sort of bringing out the composition or the detail of whatever it is you're imaging in a certain way uh, and pushing the boundaries of things artistically. That's one frontier. Another is using the same amateur equipment to get some science done, right? Can Can you identify the types of stars in these various galaxies? When you are lucky enough to capture something like a type 1a supernova in a distant galaxy. Uh, Amateurs can contribute to that and uh, getting light curves of variable stars and, and just reducing the error bars for astronomers for all kinds of science that they're doing. Those are two areas that I'm really excited about with imaging. The taking of a composed image of an object is something that sort of hones those skills and I see that as a, as a sort of a gateway into doing some of these other frontiers. At least that's what I've been thinking lately. And I don't know, I'll, I'd like to get your thought on that, uh, Andrew. Do you consider doing any types of science with your imaging?
0: Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, I think there's that scientific side that's uh, you know really driven me to this hobby to begin with. Uh, and, you know, the artistic side just kind of came out as a natural consequence of that. Um, you know, like, for example, looking for exoplanets—that's something that people can do from their backyard. A lot of people don't realize you can point a DSLR straight up and you'll know, get the—you know—measure those the brightness of, of variable stars of and figure out when these transits are happening. Uh, and there's science like that that's really fascinating. I think um, it really brings home a lot of what you know these scientists are doing uh, that just seems so. You know, far removed from our day-to-day life. And you can actually do this incredible science from your backyard. Um, you know, some of, some amateur astrophotographers are capturing impacts on planets and on the moon You know, that tell us a lot about these bodies in our solar system. So that's science that absolutely anybody can do with amateur equipment.
1: Yeah, the off-the-shelf stuff is getting so good and so accurate that things that people couldn't even dream of or possible now, like what you said, you know, these uh, detecting exoplanets and getting light curves around other stars and stuff like that. I think that's just a a frontier that's just going to explode over time. And OPT has a pro section that exists in large part because the standard astronomy imaging equipment now has gotten so good that pros are using it uh, and buying it for their universities and research organizations. So I'm just very excited about that. I think that's a frontier that we're going to see a lot more about. We're going to be hearing about some guy in his backyard who's discovered his own exoplanet that no one ever has even seen before, uh, that Kepler missed or, you know, the space telescopes aren't getting. So that's exciting. I love that. I love thinking about it. I see on your Instagram feed that you've got some nightscapes. These are things with composure to them that have a foreground here on earth with the night sky in the background. Uh, How long have you been making those? And... What do you – do you enjoy doing that too? I mean that's a part I find particularly artistic.
0: Oh, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, so it, that, that's an interesting side of side of this hobby, right, is you get a lot of downtime when you travel to do astrophotography. And for before I got into narrowband, every time I did this, I would actually – you know, travel to darker skies so i could try to shoot some galaxies uh, and some nebulas out in uh, out up the hill away from the light pollution so the problem is you go with several hours while your equipment's working to capture these images you're like what am i going to do <laughs> you crack a beer and yeah. you know hang out with friends or you can you know start taking some landscape shots so that's really you know what that evolved from is the sheer boredom associated with waiting for your equipment <laughs> to take a picture. Yeah. So I'd have some fun with like light painting. You know, you can shine a laser on things and, you know, you can capture the light in a long exposure or do some star trails and do some Milky Way shots. And uh, that's really where that came from. I haven't been doing that very long at all. I, you know, probably uh, my first Milky Way shot was maybe a year or so ago so um, i'm fairly new to that part of the hobby as well
1: beautiful though i love this i love the stuff on your instagram and i think that's also what travis burke said to us very similar which was uh that while you're waiting around for other things to happen you you start taking photos instead of instead of just sitting there getting being bored
0: exactly or you can of course bring along a dobsonian and do some visual astronomy while you're waiting that's (laughs) an hey i like
1: the way you think (laughs) that's right (laughs) get that out Right, what magnification are you using? <laughs> yeah, I just found the photo with of the galaxy with the moon in the center, that was really cool. So, what's next for you? What are, are you going to expand in any way? Or are you going to uh try something different? Or, what, what are you excited about right now?
0: Well, I'm working on a YouTube channel, um, I have it set up already, I just haven't really posted a whole lot of content, but I'm trying to set up some some ways to introduce new people to exploring a universe from your own backyard. And I'm going to do that through little, little segments on YouTube where I'm just introducing people at a very high level to the hobby and what they can expect out of it.
1: Oh, good. And so these will be like three to five minute videos or something like that?
0: Yeah, just short little videos, uh, you know, starting, you know, about equipment and then, you know, a little bit about target acquisition. Very high level stuff. I'm probably not going to get too much into the, you know, the details, not like a tutorial type thing. But just a, you know, a, a fun short video about, you know, how to, how to get into astrophotography and how to start appreciating your night sky from your own backyard.
2: Andrew, are you, do you consider yourself more of a uh, photographer or an astronomer?
0: I would say probably more of a photographer just you know based on what what I've done with it. I mean obviously astronomy goes hand in hand with astrophotography. You know I I'd say I'm definitely more interested in the artistic side, the sharing side and the outreach side than the science side. Um the science is you know, just just more arbitrary. It's mm-hmm. it, it it's going to happen because I'm right. <laughs> spending so much time studying these objects. But um, what what drives me, I think, is you know, one the validation I get from creating great images and sharing them with people and getting those reactions. But also, you know, getting other people as excited about this as I am.
2: Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I th- I think at heart I'm a photographer, but uh, there's just like this this deep draw to uh, astrophotography, which leads you to astronomy and that's that's how i ended up here but then you get hooked it gets in your blood and you you know you can never get it out it's like all you think about you know um and the challenge the challenge there too i think is is the part so that it's just hook line and sinker you know it's it's um It's the best hobby in the world. I say it all the time, but I really think it is because it ties everything together. It ties the hobby, it ties the challenge, you know, the intellectual pursuit, as well as, you know, really just always having to push yourself. And then it brings in science and philosophy all into the same hobby. I can't name another one that does that.
1: Yeah. It's hard to sit underneath the night sky and just not have your mind
2: i've never met anyone that was able to that, that doesn't go out you know you go out to an, a dark sky with someone i've never heard anybody be like oh well this is boring yeah, yeah this is, why, this why, is some why, bullshit. Yeah, why you do that <laughs> <work out>. <laughs> yeah. that'd actually be amazing that would be a pretty interesting night like that's the time you crack the beer open and you're just like tell me about yourself <laughs> like i need to hear about you because this is amazing. I'm feeling yeah. insignificant
1: today. Yeah,
2: one of the staff here today asked me um who that doesn't use um uh, Instagram and Reddit asked me so who are we podcasting with? I said, "Well, Andrew, there's um, you know, there's the astrophotography community, really more like a town with the numbers that that you're dealing with." I said, "You know, I think Andrew is the mayor of Reddit astrophotography, that town, if that's a town, I think you're the mayor, Andrew.
0: Oh, I don't know about that. You know, there's a lot more talented people, uh, you know, they contribute to Reddit. You know, they, if you look at the astrophotography subreddit, the astronomy subreddit, I mean, some of the images shared, they're just absolutely phenomenal. You know, people pouring dozens of hours into images and yeah. have incredible processing skills. I think that what sets me apart is maybe just the marketing side of it. I'm more of a self promoter than they are uh, and, uh, which I guess, you know, is how, you know, politicians rise to become mayors anyway. So maybe you're absolutely right, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I, I try not to, uh, you know, see myself as some exceptional astrophotographer cause I'm really not, um, you know, I think I've just simply found a niche and I've been able to exploit it.
1: What's it like to be on Reddit?
0: Oh, well, it's just, it's just a big forum. I mean, you <laughs> uh, once you, uh, once your links start to get a lot of attention though, it's, it, it it can get pretty crazy. Like I have thousands of messages in, in an hour. It's it can get very crazy.
2: <laughs> I think you meant more than your question really led to, right? Like like that that question <laughs> is so basic. You meant like what's it like to be on Reddit in this way, right? Yeah. Not not like what's it like to log into Reddit?
1: All right, all right. <laughs> Andrew, what's it like oh, okay. to be on Instagram? No, that's not what I meant. I did I I guess what I meant what is what is uh, that a feel platform, like when you hit that is login it button. A- More collaborative place to be uh, because when you post on Instagram, people see your images, they like them, and they 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 tell you, leave comments on them. But Reddit is a little bit different as a platform, and I'm trying to get a sense of what is astronomy like on Reddit. That's where my question was coming.
0: Well, so Instagram, you have a predictable community size, right? Because you have your followers. And then, of course, you've got hashtags that sometimes bring outside people in. With Reddit, it's different because when you're, when you're sharing something there, it's all outsiders. And that's, I think, why I've taken to it so much is because you know, the, the people that are interacting with your content don't, just, don't see this every day. So you're able to get a large audience that you know, potentially doesn't even know astrophotography even exists. And, uh, you know, get, get in touch with more of those types of people.
1: See, that's what I was getting at. So this is a place where you can be, where it's not all about the astronomy bubble. You're not posting pictures to the same people over and over again who take their own pictures and also share, although there is an element of that, but you're getting people who would never ordinarily see this stuff.
0: Exactly. Yep. When, once you hit the front page of Reddit, you're, you're getting in front of millions of people that don't necessarily subscribe to these, you know, space and astronomy subreddits. So you're able to introduce the hobby to so many more people.
2: No, this has been a blast, man. This is, uh, this is good. I I love the stuff you're doing. Obviously I know we talk about it, but, um, you know, I, I see you most on the Instagram community. That's where I, I post all of my stuff. And, uh, I've been amazed by everything you're doing. Really appreciate what you're doing for the community, and um, you know any way we can help you keep that up? That's that's what we're here for.
1: Yeah, thanks, man, for being on our podcast and sharing what you're doing. Because I agree, this is exciting stuff.
0: Definitely my pleasure, guys. I, I love it connecting with more people. You know, it's um, it disappointing that I you know there aren't more astrophotographers in my area. You know, it's it, there's not enough of us, and there needs to be more of us. Uh, so they're you know growing the, this community of astrophotographers would be huge i would love it if there was a larger community in sacramento that i could network with and, you know do these star parties with and you know being on this podcast is you know hopefully one way i can connect with more of them so i really appreciate you guys having me on
1: yeah well thank you again for for joining us on behalf of dustin gibson i'm tony darnell thank you all so much for listening and as always keep looking up